I want to start my sermon this morning with you with a question. I think sometimes it's good to start with a question to kind of get you engaged, to get you uh, investigating your own life and examining your own heart so that you can interact with God's word in a very, uh, just a very real and intentional way. So I want to start with a question as we get into my sermon. Have you ever been caught up in someone else's story? Now think for a moment with me. Think for a moment that instance in your life that you will never forget because you were either A, in the right place at the right time, or B, in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that moment, that instance, that story, it changed you. And so as you share your story about your life, you can't leave that moment out, all because you got caught up into someone else's story. You got that moment in your mind because I have that moment in my life. And I want to share it with you. I want to start with an illustration this morning. And it's kind of a shameful one for me, if I'm being very honest. It's not something that I'm proud of. Um, and to this day, it still, it still makes me grieve a little bit. Because when I was a, a young, innocent, eight-year-old boy, I became a hardcore juvenile delinquent. Eight years old. I got caught up in the story of my brother and sister. My older brother, my older sister, four years older than me, two years older than me, began playing with matches. And they got a hold of this personalized book package of matches that my dad had that had his name engraved on each and every little uh, booklet. Um, It said Steve Standridge on there. They got a hold of them. They started playing with matches and I was the innocent one. I was the, I was the rule follower. I was the one that knew the danger of playing with matches. And I didn't want any part of their little game and their little schemes and their juvenile delinquency. I didn't want any part of it. But the force, the force proved to be too strong with them. And they sucked me into the dark side. And they got me playing with matches. And that led to a hardcore life of crime of playing with matches. And um, it got to the point where it was out of control. I became an eight-year-old junkie in some ways. I, I, I couldn't get enough of playing with these matches. I needed to light them. I needed to smell them when I would light them. I needed to get my fire fix. You know, anybody in here play with matches when you were a child? You know, you know what I'm talking about or have children that did, man. All I wanted to do was play with matches. I needed them every day of my life. And before I knew it, I was lighting matches anywhere I could without getting caught. Whether it be in the garage, whether it be behind the garage, whether it be in the basement or in my bedroom or even in my dresser drawers. If it was in the backyard or the neighbor's yard, it didn't matter as long as I could get my fix. I needed to get my fix. And before you knew it, man... I was lighting things on fire. First, it started with like dry grass and leaves, little innocent things like that. Then it turned into bugs and insects. And then it just kept escalating like every sin does. And I started lighting things like cats on fire. Not really, but that's what you, you know, kids dream of doing those kinds of things. But I was, uh, I was, maybe I was a juvenile delinquent dreaming about those kinds of things, but you know, I was, I was kind of out of control. I was just one of those kids that just couldn't get enough of it. And I got to the point where it was just, 
Uh, I got careless, I got sloppy, and then I got caught. I got caught lighting matches in the garage of all places under my mom's car. You know, where like flammable fluids come out of cars and leak. That's where I got caught. And in that moment, um, I was busted. And my parents had to straighten me out. And I promise you, my dad took me to the woodshed that morning. He took me to the woodshed. And let me just explain to you, we didn't actually have a woodshed, but I promise you, he took me there anyways. And he taught me a lesson. And to this day, my sister lied about her involvement in this delinquency. And I took the punishment. I was the honest one. I took the blame. And I, to this day, I tell my family, I tell my parents that I was not the only guilty one. My brother was not the only guilty one. Our sister was involved, but we took her punishment. We walked that road to that metaphorical woodshed and we took that punishment for us and for her. And to this day, my parents have yet to, to apologize for letting my sister get off scot-free. But I share that story because I walked this long road to that metaphorical woodshed in order to receive my punishment. And as we kind of transition this morning into our text... I want to talk about this road to the cross because that's the series that we're beginning this morning as we uh, begin our preparations for Easter in just two weeks. And we want to look at some different characters on Christ's road to Calvary. And so what we find in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is we find four different accounts of what Jesus experienced on his way to taking on the sins of the world in order to pay the price for your sins and mine. And what we see on his road is that there are other people that are given snapshots into his story, that are caught up into the story of Jesus and his narrative. And so this morning, I want to look at Luke chapter 23. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. And I want to focus on one character that gets one verse in one moment in time as he is caught up into Christ's narrative. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 23, verses 18 to 25. And I want to break this down. This is kind of a, this is kind of a backstory so that we can look at one, one verse in particular. But let's start in verse 18, where Luke says this about his observation, his account of the crucifixion story. But they all cried out together. The crowds cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed the crowd once more, desiring to release Jesus. But the crowds kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. And so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and for murder, and whom they asked for. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And so here is Jesus. Here's the backstory leading up to our character that we're going to study this morning. Jesus has just gone through the longest night of his life. He knows the cup that he is about to drink of. He knows that the cross is the end or the next step, I should say, 
of this story. And he has stood trial after trial. And every one of them are illegal. Every one of them are thrown together. They're kind of like kangaroo court trials. Just because there are religious leaders who are desperate to get rid of this teacher, this rabbi from Galilee. And so Jesus is enduring the longest evening of his life. And even Pilate says this man is not guilty of death. And Pilate here is the Roman, or he's the governor of this province or of this region in this day. And the problem with Pilate is that he's a weak man. He has seen multiple different insurrections. He's seen multiple uprisings. There's all kinds of unrest in Jerusalem between the Jews and between the Romans. And Pilate really has no leverage. He has no leadership. And so he feels like he has to cave into the whims of the crowd in order that there is not another uprising because he's already on the hot seat because his job is already in jeopardy from all of the previous unrest that he has experienced. And so the crowd is crying out for this criminal to be released, a career criminal, and they want Jesus to be delivered up instead. And so Pilate does exactly what the crowd wants because they're bloodthirsty and they have a bloodlust to see someone suffer and they want, they demand that it be Jesus. And so Pilate delivers up Jesus to them And he is turned over to the Roman soldiers, and you know the story. We won't go into specific details, but we know that the Roman soldiers scourge him. We know that they beat him with a cat of nine tails. That in this whip that they have that has different little endings, there's iron, and there's metal, and there's bone, and there's glass. And they beat him, and they torment him, and they torture him with 39 lashes because... The experts in execution in Rome would tell you that a man could only take 40 lashes and then he would die. And so they gave him one less than they possibly could before they actually killed him. And the Bible tells us that he was tormented and that he was mocked and he was spit upon and they placed a crown of thorns. And this crown of thorns traditionally tells us historians say that in that area, there were thorns that sometimes were three inches long. And so we see this crown up here and this might just be a scaled version of what that what that crown of thorns might have looked like. And in all reality, those thorns may have been much longer and much more painful. And they did everything they could short of killing him in that flogging in that moment. And Roman custom was to put a criminal after they flogged him and after they beat him, they were to put him on a cross and they would march him through the town and they would force him to go through excruciating drawn out torment and torture. And they would do it in such a way that would absolutely and completely humiliate him. The criminal would be marched through the crowds and through the streets of Jerusalem, completely naked with a cross on his back. And so here's Jesus. Here is this innocent man that they call a criminal. And Jesus is clinging on to his life. He is carrying this crossbar, the crossbar, just the top portion of his cross. The, the, the historians say that it may have weighed as much as 100 pounds. And so certainly he couldn't have carried his own cross, but he had the crossbar. And he went as far as he could through the streets as he began to climb the hill toward Calvary. Jesus could physically go no further. And this is where we're introduced to our character that we're going to study this morning. This is where a man enters into another man's story. So I want to read verse 20, 
26, as we read on just a little bit further. And this is what it says as we go on. And as they led him, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And so here is Simon of Cyrene. Simon happened to just be in the crowd that day and the Roman soldiers randomly pull him out of the crowd and command him, demand him to carry the cross of Jesus. It wasn't like they were looking for volunteers. It wasn't like they were um, paying someone to do this. They simply turned and when a Roman soldier's sword was placed on your shoulder and they said, this is what you do, that is what you did because you did not cross Rome. The whole, you did not come against Rome. The whole point of crucifixion, the whole point of Rome's authority was to paint a picture of how powerful this empire was and what would happen if you stood up or rose up against the empire. And so here is Simon who is compelled or he is commanded to take the cross of Jesus. And on the surface, we don't know a whole lot about Simon because not a whole lot is said about him. And it seems that he was chosen at random. But when we dig a little bit deeper, we find that Simon is actually a wonderful picture of what a follower of Jesus looks like. What a life of discipleship should look like. Because here's what I want you to know before we get into our main observations. This is what I want you to understand is that Jesus was never looking for converts when he was on this earth and in his ministry. He was looking for disciples. Jesus never got overwhelmed or overly excited about the crowds because he knew that they were finicky people. He knew that they were here today, gone tomorrow. What Jesus was looking for was faithful followers who would follow him into whatever he led them to. And so as we look at Simon of Cyrene, I think what we see, and we're going to deduct some things this morning, is that I want to say this from the outset. I'm going to make the assumption, I'm going to make the conclusion, and I think I can prove this in some ways, that Simon became a follower of Jesus after this incident. And so when we look at the life of Simon and the example of him from simply one verse, I think what we can do is we can look and say, this is what a disciple of Jesus looks like. This is what a follower of Christ does and how he responds to his savior. And so I want to draw about three conclusions from this, this text that we're reading this morning to explain to you what it looks like to live a life of discipleship, because that's what Jesus wants from you. He doesn't want you just to be a fan. He doesn't want you to just share memes on the internet or on Facebook or social media. He doesn't just want you to be a casual follower of his. He wants you deeply devoted to his cause, willing to follow him into whatever he leads. And so this life of discipleship that he has called us into, I want to make three observations from Simon's example this morning. Number one, a life of discipleship sometimes begins with a chance encounter. A life of discipleship sometimes begins with a chance encounter. Now, let me ask the question, have you ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time? I asked you earlier if you have ever been like caught up into someone else's story. Now think about this. You ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time? And you don't forget those moments either. Here's Simon. And however you may look at it, 
He's either A, in the wrong place at the wrong time, or B, he's in the right place at the right time. But Simon, what we can probably infer and what we can know from Scripture is that he's on this lifetime journey. He's, on the, he's, he's, he's most likely a man from the city of Cyrene, which is in modern-day Libya, which is actually in North Africa. And Simon has come to Jerusalem because he wants to celebrate some of the feasts of his God and his people. And so he is on this holy tour to be able to see Jerusalem and to worship God with his people. And most likely, this is the once in a lifetime trip of a lifetime. And he had been saving for this for maybe months, if not years and years. And he was looking forward to this trip to be able to worship with his people. He made a 900 mile trek to get to this city, to be in this moment. And this tourist finds himself caught up into someone else's story And he becomes a part of the story of Christ on his way to the cross. And so here's Simon. He's going about his day. The Bible says he's coming in from the country or he's coming in from the countryside. And he just happens to be there. He has no desire and no interest to be a part of a crucifixion. He may not even know who Jesus is in this moment. He has no desire to see someone suffer. He, the Bible says he's simply coming in from the country and he just happens to be in the right place or the wrong place at the wrong time. And the, the soldiers gather him up. The, the soldiers command him to take his cross. And it seems that by chance, Simon is in this moment on this day at this very time. And in a moment, with his two boys in tow, the soldiers command Simon to carry the cross of Christ. And so Simon is thrust into the story of Jesus. And it might seem random to us, but man, God is reaching out to Simon. God has a mission for Simon. He has a task for him. He has a purpose for him. And humanly speaking, sometimes we see these as chance encounters, but God leaves nothing to chance because anything that seems random, I promise you that God has already known about and he has foreordained to happen in his will. And he had a purpose for Simon and what seems random to us was most definitely foreordained. And what I want to say to that, you, you guys, is that sometimes you find a cross. But sometimes the cross finds you. Think about your first encounter with Christ and with the gospel. Think back to that moment that you gave your life to Jesus where whatever that message was, it just penetrated your heart and your soul for the very first time and you were wrecked and you knew you needed to surrender your life to follow Jesus. Do you remember that moment? Because again, you don't easily forget those things because those are eternity and certainly life-changing moments in our lives. And so you don't forget these moments. Sometimes you find a cross, sometimes a cross finds you. And so when you were saved, that moment that you gave your life to Jesus, my guess is, is that you didn't walk into a church thinking, today's the day I'm going to give my life to Christ. You didn't walk into a conversation with a friend or a loved one and say, today is the day I'm going to repent of my sins. You probably didn't walk into that circumstance that brought you down to your knees of surrender and say, you know, today's the day I'm going to have the worst day of my life, but it is going to bring me to Christ. Most likely, it completely caught you by surprise, and it seemed like a chance encounter. You know, I had a conversation with a gentleman in our church just this this last Wednesday. 
really interesting man. I didn't know him before I met him on Wednesday, but he began telling me a little bit of his salvation story, his encounter with Jesus. And he told me about how God drew him in. He said, Chris, I was serving a seven-year prison sentence. I was in prison. And that's where Jesus saved me, in the middle of my cell. He said, the last person I was looking for in prison was Jesus. But that's where he found me. I met another woman just about a year and a half ago, who was one of my favorite ladies at Crossroads. She's a, she's a fairly new Christian. And uh, this woman, I won't share her name, but I can tell you a little bit of her story that about two years ago, in the midst of a pandemic, she was at her very rock bottom and she had taken a bottle of Jack Daniels and a bottle of pills and she rented a hotel room and she decided she was going to end her life. She was a failure at life. And not only was she a failure at life, but she also failed at suicide too. A couple days later, she wakes up in a hospital room. She recovers. She was unable to take her own life. She was at her wit's end. She was done. She had been through all of the abuse. She had been through all of the evil. She had had enough of this world. She tries to take her life and she fails at that. A couple of days after she, she comes to and she is well enough, they move her into a psychiatric hospital. She's literally in a psych ward. And by chance encounter, this woman is assigned to a Christian counselor who begins to tell her about Jesus. And in that psychiatric hospital, this woman who was losing her mind and was looking for death finds eternal life. She finds Jesus Christ. And I can tell you the last thing she was looking for when she rented that hotel room and she walked into that door, the last thing she was looking for was Jesus. But Jesus had something more for her. He wanted to use her. He had a purpose for her. And I can tell you this, I have not met a person who is more on fire for Christ than that woman is to this very day. She inspires me because she had a chance encounter with Jesus. So folks, sometimes you find a cross. Sometimes you go looking for it. But sometimes, just like Simon, that cross finds you. And it seems like it's random. It seems like it's um, luck. It seems like a chance encounter. But what it really is, is God saying, I have a plan. I have a purpose. I am doing something in your life. I want you to be my follower. The second observation that I've made from this text and from the life of Simon is that a life of discipleship compels you to take up your cross. A life of discipleship compels you to take up your cross. Simon, against his will, is forced to take up the cross of Christ. And I wonder, I wonder if at any point Simon realized or understood the significance of this moment, that the, the cross that he was carrying for Jesus this man that he had never met before, he was doing the very literal thing that Jesus commanded his believers and his disciples to do. Because just a few chapters earlier in Mark's book, or Luke's book, he says this, this is what Jesus said, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so it's, this is Simon living out what Jesus told us to do. Physically, he is literally doing it. And it's interesting to me that in Luke chapter 23, verse 26, where it says, and they laid the cross on Simon to carry it behind Jesus. Simon followed Jesus all the way to the cross. He followed Christ to the place of his crucifixion. And this is what a disciple does, folks. 
A disciple follows his master. A disciple follows his leader. A disciple follows the person that is his teacher. And Simon, and this story is a symbol of every one of us. We are the ones that should have carried that cross. We are the ones that are broken. We are the ones that turned away from God in our rebellion and in our sin. And because of our sinfulness and because of our our hatred toward God, because we are all like sheep and we have turned astray and every one of us have gone our own way, Christ had to go to the cross. And so Simon is a picture of every believer who should take up their cross. And so what does that mean? I know you've heard that phrase probably a hundred times, maybe a thousand times in church. What does it mean to take up your cross? Well, for Simon, it was a very literal wooden cross that may have weighed as much as 300 pounds, the whole thing. Simon was forced to carry this cross all the way to Mount Calvary. But for us, certainly we don't see crosses as forms of execution in 2022. And so for us to take up a cross is going to look very different. It's going to, it's more metaphorical, but it's nonetheless still imperative for us as followers of Christ. And for us, it means dying to ourselves. For us, it means sacrificing our ambitions and our desires and our direction and our calendars. It means putting aside everything that we want to selfishly live for. And it means putting aside our old sinful ways and the things that might distract us from following our Savior. It means putting to death all of those things and sacrificing them. Romans 12.1, which you've probably all heard. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. This is what our Savior wants for us. He wants us to take up that cross every day. And you know what the interesting thing is about a living sacrifice? I love those two words because I think it paints a picture. If you put a sacrifice on an altar and it is alive, that sacrifice in its flesh is going to do everything it can to get up off of that altar. But Jesus compels us. He commands us to lay ourselves down. And even when we want to walk away and take a life of ease, even when we want to take the easy route, even when we want to go our own direction, Christ is saying to us, Lay yourself down as a living sacrifice. When you want to get up, force your way back down there and offer yourself up to Christ. Be that living sacrifice. Slay your ambitions and your sins. Folks, I know that we look at Simon and we look at his story and we say, man, that's a, that's a unique once in a lifetime, once in history opportunity. And that's radical. Like that's extreme. And that's not what God has called me to. Understand this, many of us, we feel like, man, we're just trying to get by as Christ followers. We don't feel like radical Christians. We certainly don't feel like we've got a history of going to the extreme of putting our lives at risk and following Jesus no matter what the cost. And so sometimes what we end up doing is we excuse ourselves from these commands because that's not, that's not the way that I live. That's not what Jesus would actually ask of me. But here's what Jesus is simply asking you. He's not asking you to be radical or extreme. He's simply saying, this is what missionary Hudson Taylor said in one of his sermons. He said, God is not looking for people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow him. 
That's all he's asking. He's not saying you have to be a super Christian right in this moment. He's simply saying, I'm looking for people who will simply follow me and I will do the work. Take up your cross. Because folks, a life of discipleship commands us to take up that cross, to die to ourselves and to follow our Savior. And then I want to I jump down a little bit further into verse 27 because my last observation this morning is that a life of discipleship means persevering to the end. And I love this. I love this, this picture because I think what it does is it paints, it paints the path that we should be following. It paints the picture of what we should become. We should become saints who persevere until the end. And this is exactly what Simon of Cyrene did. He carried that cross. He didn't carry it 100 yards. He didn't carry it half of the way up that mountain and say, I'm out, I'm done. He carried that cross all the way to the place of Christ's execution. He carried it absolutely as far as he could until Jesus had to take it and he had to take on the sins of the world. And so Simon's convenience, his pain, his weariness, his confusion, his suffering, all of that were set aside in order that Christ would be able to get to the point where he would hang on that cross and say, finally, it is finished. The work has been done. The price has been paid. Simon never quit. He never gave up. It never got too difficult for him. He persevered to the end with Jesus. He followed him all the way to the edge of death. And what I love about this this next verse that we're going to read is that there are a group of individuals that we also see that did this the very same thing. Let's look at look look at Luke 23 verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude. Now understand, this multitude, they were mocking. They were laughing. They wanted to see blood. They wanted to see suffering. They wanted to see someone hang on that cross. They were looking for a spectacle. So there was a, follow, there was a following that was a great multitude of people. But then there were also women who were mourning and lamenting for Jesus. I love this because in this culture, 2,000 years ago, women really had no standing. Women really had no place in society. They were expected to bear children and to take care of the home. They didn't vote. They didn't usually work. They didn't really have any kind of influence in culture. They just stayed in the background and most people overlooked the women. But here is where the gospels, where Luke, Dr. Luke tells us that he elevates women and he says there were women that were lamenting and were mourning for him. These women, when everyone else faded fast, they followed hard. When all of the apostles or all of the, I should say the disciples of Jesus, when they all faded away, these women followed Christ all the way to the end. They persevered with him. A group of women Folks, this is the life of discipleship. I want you to understand that the life of a disciple is not a sprint. And I think most of you know this. Most of you understand that you don't just start sprinting out of the block as a Christian, but there are many who treat the life of following Christ as a sprint. They get all excited and they run as fast as they can and they go as hard as they can for Christ. And they're not prepared for the life of a marathon to persevere. They don't have the conditioning to finish the race with strength. They don't have the, the conditioning to finish it with endurance. And so they're sprinting out of the gate when we should really be slowing down saying, how do I make it to the end with Jesus? How do I persevere? 
Because what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 24 is that those who persevere until the very end will be saved. I want to read to you 2 Timothy chapter 2 as well. Um, And this will be our, one of our last verses that we'll read. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 says, actually I'm going to start in verse 11. And this saying is trustworthy. For we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he will also deny us. Folks, Christ is is looking for disciples who are determined to follow hard after him. And they're determined that they are going to build the endurance to withstand all of the trials and all of the temptations and all of the discouragements that come their way over the course of a lifetime of following him. I can tell you, I can tell you about my friends, Dale and Missy. They were people that came to Christ in their adult years, in their mid to early thirties, early to mid thirties. He was saved in a prison cell as well. He served a prison term, got out. Their marriage was a mess. She then came to Christ and they were brand new believers together in our church. And so my wife and I discipled with them for at least 18 weeks. It was probably more like 36 weeks or so. We spent three, sometimes three hours a night with them, just walking them through God's word. And I remember Missy telling me at one point about 25 weeks in, she was so on fire for God. She said, we will never turn from Jesus. We will never stop coming to church. We will never be distracted or look away. And I remember to this day, this was probably 15 years ago. I remember to this day saying, you listen to your words because this is a marathon, not a sprint. And you remember what you're saying right now. And I want, I want to encourage you to just pace yourself because you're playing a long game. Let's not make this about one momentary decision, but let's make this about a lifetime of determination to follow Jesus. And all these years later, Dale and Missy have faded away. They're no longer in church. They're on the verge of divorce. And my heart breaks for them because I remember those comments that they made 15 years ago. And I cautioned them and they didn't listen. Folks, we need to persevere to the very end. And many of you understand that. So this is the the example of Simon of Cyrene. This is what we see from him. But this is also the example for every one of us disciples of Jesus today. For some of you, man, you're hearing this message. And I know you've heard this multiple times. And maybe this is your day to rededicate your life to Christ, to say, I want to finish strong. Maybe for somebody in here, you've never really heard this message and had it penetrate your heart and your soul before. Maybe this is your day when you become a true disciple of Jesus. But for the rest of us, this is a moment for us to remember what Christ did. This is a moment for us to just slow down and do exactly what the Lord told us to do on the very night before he died. Because the scripture tells us that he got his disciples together in an upper room and he broke bread with them and they celebrated Passover together. And that was a picture for us that we are to remember what Jesus, our savior, our sacrificial lamb has done for us. And so the Bible says as often as we do this to remember Christ and what he did. And as we build toward Easter, we want to remember the cross, that wonderful cross where Jesus died. And we want to cling to that truth. 
And we want to remember that Jesus paid the ultimate price. And he suffered and he died. And so we're going to celebrate communion here in just a moment. Uh, We're going to have a musician come forward and Dan's going to play a little bit for us. And we're going to have a few men come forward and we're going to take the elements. And I want to invite... um, uh, I want to invite you to take these elements. We're going to pass the, the bread and we're going to pass the cup and just take one of each. And I want to remind you this morning as we close that, yes, Christ walked that journey to Calvary. He did it not because he was condemned and not because he was guilty. He did it not because he had to carry his own burden and because he had to atone for his own sin. He did it to atone for ours. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And we want to remember that this morning, and we want to celebrate what Christ did for us on the cross as we look forward to Easter. Gentlemen, you can go ahead and pass those elements. I want to read as those elements are passing. I want to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. It says this, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So some of you right now and some of you in a moment, in your hands, you're going to hold the elements of the Lord's Supper. You're going to hold this cup of juice and you're going to hold this little wafer. And these are simply symbols of what was broken and what blood was shed on the cross for our transgressions. And as we partake of these elements, understand that we are proclaiming the the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And we want to do this in a way that's not only contemplative, but that is also worshipful. And so as we take of these elements in just a moment, I want you to remember everything that Christ has done for you. And if there may be sin in your life right now, scripture talks very directly about those who partake of communion in an unworthy manner. And so if there is sin in your life, I want you to take a moment and just examine. I want you to take a moment and just Look at your own heart and your own life. And if there's any sin, this would be the time to repent. And so I want to give you just a few seconds, as some of you are still receiving those elements, to just bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want you to reflect on what Jesus has done for you. With all heads bowed and all eyes closed, let's take this moment.